This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 63rd episode of the podcast. We have to dedicate today's episode to the newest individuals that decided to join the independent progressive media revolution. Today, we have Steve Heitman, who purchased the equivalent of five VIP memberships. Wow. Big thanks to you, buddy. We also have Ruth Paul Geck, Vivian Shiano Decola, Tiffany Ullman, Dame Frame, Zachary Vandenbach, Joan Thunberg, and Daphne Brule. So thank you to all of these individuals for deciding to support the Humanist Report podcast. If you too would like to join the independent progressive media revolution, you could visit the links down below in the description box or other ways to support the show if you don't have money is to whitelist us on Adblock or to use our link to shop on Amazon. So on today's episode, I'll talk about why Hillary Clinton needs to immediately distance herself from Debbie Wasserman Schultz and how the dirty tricks Clinton used against Bernie Sanders during the primary are now coming back to bite her in the ass. Additionally, Bill Clinton is throwing Bernie Sanders under the bus, and Bernie Sanders explains how he's going to pressure Hillary Clinton to remain liberal if she is elected. And when it comes to Bernie or bust, Sarah Silverman is back to tell Bernie supporters how ridiculous they're being for not supporting Hillary Clinton. And in Jill Stein news, I'll talk about how polls are significantly underestimating the true amount of support and enthusiasm she actually has. And getting to ballot initiatives finally, I'll discuss pot legalization and its prospects, as well as ranked choice voting in Maine. So all of these topics will be covered in today's episode. Hopefully you guys stick around and enjoy it. Hillary Clinton might be doing better in the polls against Donald Trump as of late, but that doesn't necessarily mean that her campaign isn't cognizant of vulnerabilities that could still hand the election over to Donald Trump. So, for example, she loses one-third of millennial voters to third-party candidates. Another example is she's worried about a lack of enthusiasm impacting how many African Americans will come out to vote for her in Florida. And if you're surprised that they're not that excited to come out to vote for a centrist, center-right candidate, you shouldn't be. Now, another thing that they're starting to worry about is just a general lack of enthusiasm and low turnout overall, because whenever it's the case that turnout is low, guess who wins? The Republican Party. It's how they take back Congress during these midterm elections. Millennials stay home. Many voters stay home because there's no president that they're voting for. And Democrats end up losing big time. So part of the reason why turnout might be lower than usual is because a lot of the tactics that she used during the primary against Bernie Sanders are now coming back to bite her in the ass. So Observer wrote a phenomenal article explaining why this is the case. So they say, in addition to failing to hold voter registration drives to the same extent they traditionally do, the Democratic Party and Clinton campaign did everything in their power to limit the pool of voters in the primary as they would likely have favored Sanders over Clinton. So let's just stop right there. They didn't want people to come out to vote, which is never a good thing for Democrats, but they thought that it would help Hillary Clinton, and certainly it did. So now... Since you have so much ground to make up, it's hurting you because you could have registered that much more voters. So now you're having to work double time to do that because you wanted to cheat during the primary. You didn't want to give Bernie Sanders a fair shot and do what you needed to do to win the general because you thought that whatever Republican, be it Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, would win at that time. Well, it's going to be an easy ride for you. And 
Typically, that would be the case. I would agree with you, but, you know, if you're historically disliked only to be outdone by Donald Trump, then that doesn't necessarily bode well for you in November, especially if you get dirty during the primaries. They continue. In an effort to portray all Sanders supporters as white male sexists, Clinton supporters developed the Bernie bro narrative into a major campaign issue. The mainstream media and Clinton campaign also drove the false narrative that Sanders couldn't resonate with diverse demographics. By whitewashing the Sanders campaign, the Democratic Party and Clinton campaign silenced these demographics of voters who supported Sanders, yet are now clamoring for their support after treating them as second-class citizens. The Democratic Party did nothing but stand behind Clinton throughout the primaries while Debbie Wasserman Schultz tipped the scales against Sanders. The only reason Wasserman Schultz eventually resigned was because the WikiLeaks release of DNC emails disintegrated any plausible deniability of neutrality she had left. Still, no Democrat spoke out when Clinton immediately hired her. It would appear the Clinton campaign has suddenly realized they actually need people to vote for their candidate in order to win, focusing entirely on soliciting donations from elites and the Republican and Democratic Party can't get Clinton to the Oval Office. That's a phenomenal point because we saw this strategy play out during the primary and we warned Democrats it was not smart. So her whole strategy was to divide the party now, demonize Bernie Sanders, vilify his supporters, and then try to unify the party later. And she thought that because, you know, the primary between her and Barack Obama in 2008 was pretty dirty, yet her supporters still acquiesced behind Obama and supported him once she endorsed him. She thought that, you know, the same thing would be true for Bernie Sanders, but it's not. And when you get that dirty, as Hillary Clinton did, when you <laughs> hire the person who cheated their candidate out of the position that you're in, you can't expect those feelings to just go away overnight. In fact, they're probably never going to go away. And I would be surprised if they linger until the midterm election with you when you try to run again, inevitably, if you are elected. I would imagine that many Bernie Sanders supporters still won't vote for you because they're going to remember what you did to cheat them out of real change. And think about everything that went on. Debbie Wasserman Schultz rigged the primary. You're now rubbing that in our face because she's your campaign surrogate. Unbelievable. So you did all these really terrible things. You didn't do these get out the vote drives. You're doing it now because you have to. But you didn't do it during the primary, which is demo which is what Democrats always have to do. If a Democrat wants to be elected as president, he or she must make sure they get out the vote. You didn't want to do that because you didn't want to hurt your chances against Bernie Sanders, even though you had the advantages, Hillary. You had Debbie Wasserman Schultz trying to vilify Bernie Sanders and his supporters and cheat him out of the primary. You had election fraud that conspicuously benefited you. You had the name recognition. You're a Clinton. And yet you still wanted to make sure you did everything possible to cheat your way to the Democratic nomination. And now everything that you did is biting you in the ass. You made your bed. Now you have to lie in it. Because don't be surprised if Bernie Sanders supporters don't want to support you after you treated them like shit. And furthermore, you could have done small things to help ameliorate these feelings. It, they wouldn't have gone away. Not everyone would jump over and support you, but this would have helped, and some people would have probably been more inclined to do so. One, you could have distanced yourself from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I've said that a thousand times. Two, you could have selected anyone other than Tim Kaine. I mean, there's so many people that you could have chosen, but you chose Tim Kaine. The only person who probably would have been worse than Tim Kaine is Debbie Wasserman Schultz for you to pick as your running mate. Why not Bernie Sanders?
Why not Elizabeth Warren? I mean, it's just completely mind-boggling to me that you would go to great lengths like this to rig the primary and then be shocked when those people who you screwed over don't want to support you. It's not surprising. It's common sense. If you open your eyes, maybe you would see that the truth is right there in front of you. If you treat people like shit, they're not going to support you. Cause and effect. So here's a name you haven't heard in a while. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, otherwise known as Debbie Do Anything for Hillary Wasserman Schultz, aka Debt Trap Debbie. So just to remind you guys, this is the former DNC chair that rigged the primary for Hillary Clinton successfully, I might add, and she had to resign in disgrace because of it. Well, rather than trying to distance herself from this individual, Hillary Clinton has fully embraced Debbie Wasserman Schultz and is now trotting her out as a campaign surrogate. Take a look. Yeah, I'm not surprised, Debbie, that they're not very excited to see you. Even if they're supporting Hillary Clinton and they voted for Hillary Clinton during the primary, I mean, they've got to admit, wow, this this is not a good look. She has to win over Bernie supporters, and this isn't going to help. Now, let me just remind you here. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, after she successfully rigged the primary for Hillary Clinton, she was rewarded by Hillary Clinton and offered a position as her honorary campaign chair. So, obviously, this is going to rub people the wrong way, piss off Bernie Sanders supporters, even piss off some Clinton supporters. Now, Heavy is an outlet that asked them, what do you think about Debbie Wasserman Schultz speaking at Hillary Clinton? Clinton rallies. And it was really enlightening as to what they had to say. So a former volunteer for Bernie said, if Secretary Clinton is trying to earn Sanders supporters vote, I do not think that this is the proper manner in which to do so. Although I am a member of that party, I'm only so in name as I witnessed a biased Democrat party election in which Debbie Wasserman Schultz played favoritism. Absolutely. And those feelings they're not just going away. They're still lingering. People are still outraged that you cheated them out of a candidate that was going to fight for them. So more on this. Nick from Los Angeles is a Bernie Sanders supporter, but he also currently plans to support Clinton in the general election. He is very angry about Wasserman Schultz speaking at Clinton's rally. He told Heavy, my idea is that we have a fundraising event where Debbie Wasserman Schultz sits in a dunk tank filled with tar instead of water and people donate $100 to Clinton's campaign for a chance to sink her. Maybe make it 1000 buy-in. People would pay. Damn. Richard Hillary, a Clinton supporter from Austin, told Heavy that he agreed. Trotting out Debbie Wasserman Schultz now, two months after WikiLeaks and the convention, seems so ill-considered. And on Twitter, whenever they see Debbie Wasserman Schultz speak on Hillary Clinton's behalf, their reactions 
are as you would suspect. So we have Karen Lewis saying, Great way to glean Bernie supporters. Introduce Debbie Wasserman Schultz on the stump. HRC has no shame. And Anne states, Damn it, Hillary Clinton, you were doing great until now when you called Debbie Wasserman Schultz my friend. So... This is something that honestly is astonishing to me. And look, as someone who often criticizes Hillary Clinton for being a focus group driven, poll minded politician, when I say that, I'm not trying to imply that she's actually good at it because she's made many rookie mistakes that politicians as rehearsed as her and as scripted as her should never be making. So, I mean, she should be distancing herself. There's no question about that from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And look, let me be completely fair to Hillary Clinton, even if she tried to publicly distance herself from Debbie Wasserman Schultz, we would know that it was all just an act because Debbie Wasserman Schultz has been friends with Hillary Clinton for a really long time. She was the co-chair of her 2008 campaign. She rigged the primary for her in 2016. So obviously, these two love each other. But at least, I mean... I would think, all right, she has common sense to try to distance herself from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She could even put out like a fake, bullshitty public statement condemning uh, how Debbie Wasserman Schultz treated Bernie Sanders, but she didn't do that. She embraced her, and to me, that is just, it's mind-blowing. I don't even know how anyone who considers themselves a veteran politician who is part of the establishment can do something like that and think that there's not going to be any negative repercussions. How is Robbie Mook, her campaign manager, okay with this? How is anyone on Clinton's staff okay with this? I mean, if someone rigs a primary for you and cheats your opponent out of the position that you're in right now, and his supporters are booing you during your Democratic convention, maybe that's an indication that You've got some damage control to do. Now, again, many of her attempts at damage control probably wouldn't work, admittedly, but at least it would <laughs> it would be less shameful, basically. Because, I mean, to trot her out, to have Debbie Wasserman Schultz try to rouse up the crowd and get them excited for Hillary Clinton, who the hell is going to be excited to see Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a centrist politician who's corrupt? Nobody! But again, if you're at a Hillary Clinton rally, then I can't help that your taste in politicians is probably off. But I mean, look, these are Bernie Sanders supporters who voted for him during the primary, but are now voting for Hillary Clinton. That's like a slap in their face. That's like pouring salt in their wounds because they wanted Bernie. But Debbie Wasserman Schultz is the individual that cheated them out of that. And now you're trotting her out to basically rub it in their faces. I mean, this is just, it's not a good look. So it just kind of proves that Hillary Clinton and her staff are just clueless. They're running a historically bad campaign, besides the fact that she's just not very progressive on the policies and that she's only paying lip service to us now. She's just terrible at running a campaign. That's why she lost in 2008, and it's why she consistently is dipping in the polls when it comes to her versus Donald Trump, which is someone who anyone should be beating, because Donald Trump is even a worse politician than Hillary Clinton. He's a complete idiot, and yet there are these time periods where she dips in the polls. That should never happen to someone as stupid as Donald Trump. But again, it just shows how bad of a politician Hillary Clinton is. It's often the case that Democratic Party loyalists can't understand why Jill Stein supporters 
don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton when she adopted the same policies that Bernie Sanders talked about during the primary. Case in point, uh, free college tuition. So the problem is that they don't get that we don't believe that Hillary Clinton is actually going to get in office and fight for these things. We know, just like all politicians, she has an agenda, and her agenda is strictly to be elected and enrich her own power. So she decided to endorse tuition-free college or debt-free college, whatever you want to call her plan, in an effort to get Bernie Sanders to drop out and endorse her. That's our view. That's what you think. You can agree or disagree with that. I think facts are on our side when you look at Hillary Clinton's record. Now, Bernie Sanders is a smart guy. He knows about this. He knows that we have our doubts about Hillary Clinton, and we all know that deep down she doesn't give a shit about debt-free college because if she did want Bernie Sanders' plan, then maybe she should have actually campaigned on it when she started her campaign and not just as a means of getting Bernie Sanders to quit. So Bernie Sanders talked about what he's going to do and what role he's going to play in her campaign if it is the case that she is elected and how he's going to get her to actually be liberal like she says she is. So they asked what his role would be if she's elected, and this was his response. My role is to do everything I can see that the Democratic platform, which is the most progressive party platform in the history of this country, is in fact implemented. I just spoke to the secretary last week, and what she told me is that within the first 100 days of the administration, she would be introducing legislation and working with members of Congress on a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United, the 2010 Supreme Court decision allowing unlimited independent spending on elections, to raise the minimum wage to a living wage, to provide pay equity for women, to make public colleges and universities tuition-free for the middle class, and to write very strong legislation on climate change. Those are some of the areas, not all of them. So they then asked how he's actually going to hold her accountable uh, if she does go back on these promises. And he states, I think it's not just me. There are millions of people who understand that we need to create a government that represents all of us and not just the 1%. I think the Democratic platform is a very strong platform and provides a blueprint for moving in that direction. That's what we've got to do. We've got to rally the American people to demand that their government represents all of us and not just the people on top. So it's very clear from this that Bernie Sanders thinks that we're going to have to be be the ones to hold Hillary Clinton's feet to the fire. He's really expecting us to protest and show up at Congress and hold up signs saying, hey, this is what you promised. Actually, go through with your promise for once. So do I think this will be an effective strategy? What we typically see is when people are uninspired by a candidate or, you know, they're not very enthusiastic about the political process, they're just going to tune out, and that's what I'm hoping doesn't happen. So if Bernie Sanders were elected, I would think that this strategy would actually work because Bernie Sanders would keep those people who he brought into the political process engaged. But if Hillary Clinton is president or Donald Trump is president, people are going to tune out immediately because they're going to see that it's just a disgusting thing to watch to see how presidents are bought and paid for by special interests and they're just going to tune out. I mean, if you look at political science studies, one from Mexico shows that when citizens actually became aware of corruption, they didn't protest that corruption. They decided to just stop voting. So I think that if Hillary Clinton is president, we're going to see a similar effect. And that's really bad. And, you know, it's really frustrating because I don't think anyone can really galvanize voters like Bernie Sanders can or like President Obama can. We know that Barack Obama lied to us and that he was kind of 
a wolf in sheep's clothing, if you will, because he promised to not allow lobbyists to run his campaign for him and run his administration, and he did just that. I mean, when he was elected, he appointed Timothy Geithner, a Wall Street operative, to his campaign immediately. So, I mean, we know that Barack Obama sold out like that. With Bernie Sanders, we know he was the real deal just because we saw how the whole establishment just came together trying to destroy him, and he also didn't take money from these special interests who he was going to be regulating. So unless we get a candidate that is going to be the real deal, like Bernie Sanders, I don't necessarily know that this strategy is going to actually be effective. I mean, the jig is up. When it comes to Barack Obama, we know that you can't just talk to talk. You actually have to walk the walk. So if you say you're going to be harsh on Wall Street, you can't take their money. So I mean, Bernie Sanders, what he really did was set a new standard. He made it so that way he not just talked a good game, he actually followed through with it and walked the walk because he didn't just say, I'm not going to just reign in Wall Street. I'm not even going to take their money. They're not going to be allowed to bribe me. And that's why they were so terrified. One of Hillary Clinton's good friends, uh, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, he said that Bernie Sanders was dangerous. That goes to show you that Bernie Sanders was the real deal. So I just... I'm not very hopeful that this strategy will work because I don't necessarily think the American people are going to be inspired. I think they're just going to stop following politics if they don't believe any change is going to happen. Because, I mean, if you're disgusted with something and it's making you depressed, you stop following it. So unfortunately, that's what I think is going to happen. uh, and, And I don't think it's going to work. So if Bernie Sanders is really expecting that Hillary Clinton is going to follow through with her promises and that it's going to require more than just us taking her word and we're actually going to have to fight for progressive policies, then he's got to come up with something else because I really don't think this will be effective. So I'm a bit late to the party on this, but I still wanted to talk about it because Hacked Audio reveals what Hillary Clinton really thinks about Bernie Sanders supporters. So we'll go ahead and listen to that and then I'll share my opinion on it because I have a lot to say, as you all may have guessed. Some are new to politics completely. They're children of the Great Recession and they are living in their parents' basement. Uh, They feel that they got their education and the jobs that are available to them are not at all what they envisioned for themselves. And they don't see much of a future. I met with a group of young uh, black millennials today and you know, one of the young women said, you know, none of us feel like we have the job that we should have gotten out of college. Um, and we don't believe that the job market is going to give us much of a chance. So that is a mindset that is really affecting their politics. And so if, if you're feeling that you're consigned to, you know, being a barista or, you know, some other job that doesn't pay a lot and doesn't have much of a ladder of opportunity attached to it, then the idea that maybe, just maybe, you could be part of a political revolution is pretty appealing. So I think we all should be really understanding of that, and we should try to do the best we can, uh, not to be you know, a wet blanket on idealism. You want people to be idealistic, you want them to set big goals, but to take what we can achieve now and try to present them as bigger goals. I mean, getting our country to 100% universal coverage is a big deal. Getting that Affordable Care Act to work better for people, getting the costs down so that people feel that they can afford the care that they now have access to, that's a big deal. You know, going after infrastructure, manufacturing, combating climate change by setting some big goals like 
half a billion new solar panels by the end of my first term and enough clean power to power every home in America by the end of my second term. That's a big goal. So what we have to do and what I'm trying to do um, is to make the case that we've got ideals, we've got big goals, but we also believe that the path to progress is one that you just have to get up every day and work on. You have to make it your life's work if you do this full time. You have to make it part of your civic responsibility um, for others and just keep making that case. Um, it's not as glamorous. It's not as exciting. It doesn't promise a revolution. I mean, I'm still trying to understand the revolution part because here's how I think about it. In order, to, I mean, and 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 Senator Sanders sort of alludes to this. In order to have the revolution, first we have to take back the Senate and get to 60 votes. <laughs> then we've got to take back the House, and that may require some redistricting in order to get people out of safe Republican seats so they can be competitive again. I think we're already in like year six or seven uh, of a two-year term. So, you know, those of us who understand this, who have been experienced, who have worked in it, know that it's, it's a false promise. But I don't think you tell idealistic people, particularly young people, that they've bought into a false promise. You try to do the best you can to say, hey, you know, that, that's his view, that's what he is offering you. But here's another way where actually we can achieve a lot of what we have said starting day one and, and make a real difference in people's lives. And I tell them all the time, it is important to recognize what's going on in this election. Everybody who's ever been in any election that I'm aware of is quite bewildered because there is a, a, a strain of, on the one hand, a kind of populist, nationalist, xenophobic, discriminatory kind of uh, approach that we hear too much of uh, from uh, the, the Republican candidates. And on the other side, it, there's a just a deep desire to believe that you know we can uh, have free college, free health care, that what we've done hasn't gone far enough and we just need to you know go as far as you know Scandinavia, um, whatever that means. And half the people don't know what it means, but it is something that they deeply uh, feel. So as a friend of mine said the other day, I am occupying from the center left to the center right. And I don't have much company uh, there uh, because it is difficult when you're running to be president and you understand how hard the job is. I don't want to overpromise. I don't want to tell people things that I know we cannot do. I want to level with the American people and about the progress I think we can make. Now, it won't surprise any of you to uh, hear me say that I think we can grow the economy, get back to more broad-based, inclusive prosperity. We did it in the 90s. We saw the results of having not only a lot of jobs, but incomes rising. This isn't surprising. I mean, many of the things she said, I already knew and have been speculating about based on facts for months now. So when she says she's a center-left to center-right politician, I've stated this before, she's center-left on social issues and center-right when it comes to economic policies. I'd argue that she's actually just right-wing when it comes to war. So a lot of these things didn't actually surprise me. So let me get to some of these specifics. So when she talked about young people living in parents' basements 
And she said, if you feel like you got a bad deal, then the idea of a political revolution is pretty appealing. So I think we should be understanding of that. I don't have any problems with that. I didn't take her saying that millennials live in their parents' basements as like a slight. The way that I looked at it is she's kind of talking about the economic situation that we're living in and how we're kind of getting a bad deal. So us wanting some type of political revolution to dramatically reshape the political status quo to get us out of this bad situation is what I want. And I think that she is picking up on that. Here's what I did dislike from this audio. So she stated that she doesn't understand the quote revolution part and she stated that it's a false promise and I don't think you tell idealistic people particularly young people that they bought into a false promise implying that Bernie Sanders is making false promises to us but Hillary it's not about that yes I'm admittedly idealistic but that doesn't mean you have permission to talk down to me but I know that with Bernie Sanders I wasn't buying into a false promise with Jill Stein I know I'm not buying into a false promise. Do I actually believe that Bernie Sanders will get a single-payer healthcare system passed if he were elected? Do I honestly believe that Jill Stein could get her Green New Deal through Congress if she's elected? Probably not, given the political climate that we're living in, because in this country, money equals speech, and those with the most money have the loudest voices. So these health insurance companies, for example, with millions and millions and billions of dollars just when you look at the industry collectively, obviously they have a vested interest in existing, so they don't want single-payer health care to pass, which is why they tried to buy off Hillary Clinton, and they successfully did that by greasing her palms, by allowing her to give these expensive speeches on their behalf. This is why they constantly lobby and contribute to the campaigns of both Democrats and Republicans. So I don't actually believe that anything Bernie Sanders really wants could get through, but here's why his campaign was still important. He would at least be fighting for them, and when you fight for them, you move the needle at least slightly, right? So think about President Obama when he mentioned free college tuition at community colleges. All of a sudden, we're all talking about free college tuition, and the Democratic Party is talking about free college tuition. So when you're the president, you have the bully pulpit that you can use to your advantage to change the way that people think about issues. You can prime them and raise the salience and the level of importance in their head about certain issues. So by Bernie Sanders just fighting for universal health care, I think that that is something that can have a profound impact, and maybe not while he's in office, but maybe 10 years down the line. 20 years down the line, we might actually get it because people start thinking about it and looking it up and realizing that this is something that is a necessity. So I don't think it's a false promise. We're not being misled. We're just hoping to maybe get the ball rolling. Now, um, the audience laughed when she implied that Sanders supporters want to, quote, go as far as Scandinavia, whatever that means. Half the people don't know what it means, but it is something they deeply feel. And as a friend of mine said the other day, I'm occupying the center left and the center right, and I don't have much company there. And I don't want to overpromise. I don't want to tell people things that I know we cannot do. So, in other words, she's telling us she knows what's best for us. We don't know what we really want. We look at Scandinavia and we see that they actually have a just economic system. They have a prison system that actually works where they don't treat human beings like animals. They have universal health care. They don't have just gross income inequality. Why is that too much to ask for? The United States 
doesn't exist in a vacuum. So if there's another country with single-payer healthcare, you're damn right I'm going to believe that that's possible in the United States because we live on the same planet as other countries that were able to accomplish the things that we want. And again, I know that this isn't going to happen overnight, but we can get the ball rolling by voting for candidates who are at least going to fight for it. And you're not overpromising if you say, I'm going to fight for a single-payer healthcare system. Bernie Sanders, I don't think he ever said, I'm going to get in and we will get single-payer. I don't think I heard him say that once. But what he did reiterate multiple times is that when he gets in office, he's going to fight his ass off for these policies. And he may not be able to get them achieved. But if he's fighting for it, there's value in that, Hillary. And that's what you don't get. So the fact that we have institutions that stifle change from happening at a significant level. Like, for example, when it comes to the New Deal that FDR implemented, that's really rare. When it comes to the political revolution on the wrong side that Ronald Reagan waged, that's also rare. So we very rarely have these types of transformative figures that are actually able to implement lots of new policies and reshape the status quo in the country, regardless if it's for the better or worse. Bernie Sanders could have been that individual and set us on a path towards single-payer and free college tuition. That's what you don't get. That's why we just don't like your brand of Democrat, Hillary Clinton, because you don't even want to try to fight for things that's difficult. You want to get in office, and you want to do just what's politically feasible. So that's telling me that you're willing to compromise before you're even there. I don't want that because if you say you only want a $12 minimum wage, then when you become president, then maybe we'll only get a $10 minimum wage. And then 20 years later, when we finally raise it again, things will get that much worse. The issue of income inequality will continue to compound. And look, we need substantial change. That's what we need right now to fix the problems in the country. And clearly, you're not willing to fight for it. So I'm not necessarily angry at the fact that she called us basement dwellers because you know, many of us live with our parents at older ages because we were screwed over. We don't have the same economy that we had when Hillary Clinton was our age. That's not our fault. And I think that she gets it. But what she doesn't understand is that being idealistic and actually dreaming and actually believing that things are possible that we see in other countries that work, that's not crazy. That's not us being naive. That's you not willing to stand up and fight for these things like we want you to do. Hence the reason why millennials aren't enthusiastic about your campaign. So probably for the 1,000th time during this election, Bill Clinton has put his foot in his mouth once again by throwing Bernie Sanders under the bus in an effort to evade criticism that him and Hillary Clinton are receiving by a heckler for the 1994 crime bill. Trying to woo young voters in a key swing state, Clinton was interrupted by a protester shouting he cannot vote for someone who sends thousands of people to prison. Hillary didn't vote for the 94 crime bill, even though Senator Sanders did. The former president shot back as a heckler was removed from the rally. Bubba's remark to highlight divisions between his wife and Sanders won't do much to build their alliance, especially as Sanders has been diligently campaigning for Hillary Clinton and trying to convince his young supporters to back Clinton and move past their feelings of being shunned by the DNC and the Clinton campaign during the primary. So I don't understand why he's assuming that this heckler is a Bernie Sanders supporter, and I don't know how Bernie Sanders voting for the crime bill would somehow 
clean Hillary Clinton's hands. She's still guilty for what she did, and Bernie Sanders does play a role, but by just saying that Bernie Sanders voted for the crime bill, you're being incredibly disingenuous. Look, let me remind you here. So as First Lady, Hillary Clinton lobbied for the 1994 crime bill because it helped Bill Clinton get elected. He was campaigning on it, and Clinton did not foresee the role that it would play in increasing mass incarceration, that or she just didn't care, it's probably the latter, but Bernie Sanders did. In fact, he warned them about it and said that it would lead to mass incarceration. However, seeing that there is nuance in the world, he stated that there were certain provisions in the bill that he really wanted to pass. Here's what he said about it. Mr. Speaker, I rise in strong opposition to the McCullough Amendment and, in fact, in strong opposition to this so-called crime prevention bill. Mr. Speaker, let us be honest, this is not a crime prevention bill. This is a punishment bill, a retribution bill, a vengeance bill. My friends, we have the highest percentage of people in America in jail per capita of any industrialized nation on earth. We've beaten South Africa. We've beaten the Soviet Union. What do we have to do? Put half the country behind bars? Mr. Chairman, how do we talk about the very serious crime problem in America without mentioning, without mentioning that we have the highest rate of childhood poverty in the industrialized world by far, with 22% of our children in poverty and 5 million kids hungry today? Do you think maybe that might have some relationship to crime? All the jails in the world and all the executions in the world will not make that situation right. We can either educate or electrocute, we can create meaningful jobs, rebuilding our society, or we can build more jails. Mr. Speaker, let us create a society of hope and compassion, not one of hate and vengeance. I have a number of serious problems with the crime bill, but one part of it that I vigorously support is the Violence Against Women Act. We urgently need the $1.8 billion in this bill to combat the epidemic of violence against women on the streets and in the homes of America. This bill would have put more police on the street, would have locked up violent offenders so they never could get out again, uh, would have given more prison construction money available to the states and uh, as well as the federal government, but also would have dealt with prevention, giving young people something to say yes to. Uh, it's a very well thought out crime bill that is both smart and tough. So, I mean, as the article rightfully points out, saying something like this, trying to throw Bernie Sanders under the bus to make Hillary Clinton look better, is not going to unify the party. I mean, is it not enough that she rigged the primary and cheated Bernie Sanders out of the nomination? I mean, do you have to complete and utterly vilify Bernie Sanders at every opportunity you can just to make Hillary Clinton look better? Look, Hillary Clinton looks like shit because Hillary Clinton is a bad politician and she's culpable in many of these policies that were not progressive. You're culpable in many of these policies that are not progressive, Bill. Let me remind you that Bill Clinton is a president that literally wanted to privatize Social Security, but fortunately... The Monica Lewinsky scandal stopped him from doing that because he just didn't have the political capital to take on such a huge battle. That's further than George W. Bush because everybody talks about how George Bush wanted to partially privatize Social Security. Nobody's talking about how Bill Clinton tried to do that as well. And furthermore, Bill Clinton gutted welfare. He signed welfare reform into law that gutted welfare. And furthermore, you campaigned on a bill that 
further increased mass incarceration in the United States. So here's what I don't understand. Why did he have to invoke Bernie Sanders in order to defend his wife? Couldn't he just have said, look, Hillary Clinton admits that that bill, she shouldn't have lob lobbied for it. It was a mistake. And, uh, you know, she, she realizes the role that she played in mass incarceration. But what she's going to do now is take steps to reverse the role that that bill played in increasing mass incarceration. Why couldn't you have just said something like that? Or just gave like a non-answer or ignored him altogether. Why did you choose to throw Bernie Sanders under the bus? And look, this is a consistent pattern for Bill Clinton. Let me remind you what else he did during this election. He implied that Bernie Sanders supporters were sexist. He compared them to Tea Partiers. And he also implied that we're so extreme that we would want to kill Wall Street executives. No, Bill, we want them to just be reined in and not be able to crash the economy. I think that's pretty reasonable. I don't think that makes us extremists. He also committed election fraud in broad daylight in Massachusetts by campaigning for Hillary Clinton inside of polling booths. And when you go inside of a polling booth to shake people's hand and you tell them to pull the lever for Hillary Clinton, that's illegal. You're not allowed to do that. We have these laws in place because this can lead to intimidation. Candidates can go into polling booths and intimidate voters. Now, I'm not saying that Bill Clinton did that, but... That's why we have these laws to prohibit candidates from campaigning because it can be very authoritarian if you allow it to, uh, to happen. So I don't get what is Bill Clinton's problem. He continues to put his foot in his mouth and Hillary Clinton continues to use him as a campaign surrogate. Okay, stop. Go home, Bill. Okay, nobody wants to hear what you have to say. And another thing that always bothers me about Bill Clinton is that he's always credited by, you know, helping the economy. When nobody talks about the tech boom that happened in the 1990s that definitely was beneficial for the economy. Now, his policies, like NAFTA, they were neoliberal. Bill Clinton is a neoliberal, and he unilaterally moved the Democratic Party to the right. And people thank him for this and say, look, he made Democrats electable again. Well, you didn't have to do that. You could have just stayed where you are, remained FDR Democrats, and you would have won because after seeing that trickle-down economics doesn't work, people would get tired of Republicans, and then they would be coming back to you with open arms. But instead, you decided to move the party to the right, and then the party hasn't shifted back. In fact, as Republicans move to the right, Democrats are following them. So as long as Democrats aren't as crazy as Republicans, even if they're shitty, even if they're corporatists, even if they're sellouts, then they can critique you if you don't vote for them or don't like them or vote third party. Not acceptable. And Bill Clinton is a part of the problem. Bill Clinton is a part of the system that disenfranchises voters that has led to mass income inequality, mass incarceration, and all he can do is place blame on other people. And this is what Hillary Clinton does too. Well, my foundation, you know, we have these conflicts of interest going on, but look at the Trump Foundation. I'm sick of it. For once, just take responsibility for your actions. Sarah Silverman is someone who used to be a progressive ally and used to support Bernie Sanders, so I found it odd that after the primary was rigged, Bernie Sanders and his supporters were vilified, and he lost 184 pledged delegates to election fraud that she would have the audacity to infamously tell us that we're being ridiculous. Can I just say, to the Bernie or bust people, you're being ridiculous. 
Now, she went on Bill Maher's show, which I have just found to be completely insufferable lately since he's become a Hillary apologist. And she was basically congratulated for talking down to us peasants uh, and Bill Maher and her doubled down. So take a look. Ever oh. since you were at the, the Democratic convention and you pointed at the Bernie people and said, you're being ridiculous. And I thought it was wonderful. And that was just in the moment. Bernie, yeah, they absolutely. literally told us to stretch. But, uh, but is that, uh, do you wear the crown heavily now that you've been anointed as a, someone who's going to lead us in our political thinking? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, I, there's no one more Bernie than me. I am right, so I uh, inspired every day by Bernie right. Sanders. The good news and, is, but, uh, you know, people who change the world are almost never the president, you know? So we don't have them for four years. We have them forever. Is that so bad to settle for? Well, actually, people... The, no, no, no. no. <laughs> the, the president is someone who changes the world. Yes, but let's, let's, let's just the, get that the people out of the that table. we remember in throughout history that have changed our world are almost never the president. That's completely not true, and the, <laughs> and the very the very reason we're so afraid of Trump is because that it is true that the president. Oh, I see does, your line of thinking, but I'm yes, thinking of Gandhi, Martin Luther man. King. Uh, you know, yes. some of those people changed right. the world. But Martin Luther King didn't send troops into the South to make sure that the black people could go to college. Are president, you sure? President Kennedy did that. Because of President pressure, Kennedy, because of pressures from outside people, yes, absolutely. and Bernie needs right. an no, ally in I, office. That's right. That's why no, I don't no, understand no. these Bernie or bust people. You know, I, I don't know what their long game is. I don't know what their perfect dream scenario is. I well, earnestly am asking, or am I being obtuse? No, you are. But not. it seems and, that it would and, be good to have an ally you are the in office. One to talk to them, because what are you, 28, 29 now? You're almost. almost. You're <laughs> that that's a big funny joke <laughs> you're a millennial and one with stamina um <laughs> now let me read the the polls here on uh, clinton 18 to 34 people clinton 31 percent uh-huh trump 26 gary johnson 29 percent gary johnson gary johnson gary johnson listen is a fucking idiot. <laughs> I feel like he's a fucking idiot. I like him, he's a nice guy, but he's another in my basket of fucking idiots. Listen, I, I, I voted and I believe you did in 2000 for Ralph Nader. Yes. But this is not that kind of time. Right. No, and he, he wasn't, wasn't an, an idiot, idiot, but he also wasn't no. going to win. And it was we a mistake. We wanted to vote our conscience. And I admitted it, yes. It was a mistake. Okay, but Gary Johnson, can I show you a little, we put a little montage of Gary mm -hmm. Johnson together, <laughs> just to remind, and, and we th all thought he was a cool guy, you know, he smokes pot, he was for pot, <laughs> he's not making pot look good. Pot doesn't way. make you cool. <laughs> right. Pot is cool. Pot is cool, <laughs> but, but it doesn't make you You know cool. what's also cool? Reading. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a little bit of Gary Johnson for those thinking of voting for him. Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? Aleppo, um, not knowing that there's a city in between the, the, the two forces. Who's your favorite foreign leader? Who's my favorite? Any, anybody. Pick any leader. I'm, I'm having a brain. I'm well, name brain anybody. Box. I think I could stand up there for the whole debate. So weird. Really? <laughs> and 
By the way, for the people 29 percent, 18 to 34, who I assume a lot of them were Bernie people, right? Okay, here's some uh, minimum wage. Hillary's with Bernie, not Gary Johnson. Right. Believes in no minimum wage. TPP, he's for that. Hillary and Bernie are against it. Citizens United, all the money you want in politics. Gun control, wants none of that. Financial regulation, universal health care, he's for repealing Obamacare, free college, he's against that. He's for nothing that you fucking people want. It's not even like, is any, no one's even misinforming them about him. Like right. they are, with like, with your friend. You know, it's like people, what you were saying was exactly right. People vote because they're totally misinformed and that is a real thing. So there were several things in there that I took issue with. So uh, at one point, Bill Maher said, you're a pundit now since you pointed at the Bernie people at the convention and told them they're being ridiculous. And you know, I just thought it was wonderful. Ah, uh, see what you see here is two rich people explaining to poor peasants and talking down to them about why they shouldn't be angry that a rich corporatist oligarch cheated them out of the candidate that they supported during the primary. That is just, you know, that's beautiful right there. You get these moments once in a while and you really got to cherish them because it just shows how smug and condescending these rich celebrities really are. It was wonderful to tell these people that they're just being ridiculous. Now, you're not going to ask why they're being ridiculous and why they're booing Hillary Clinton. You're not going to try to actually substantively address their concerns, though, are you? You're just going to tell them they're ridiculous, look how crazy Donald Trump is, and fall in line and vote for Hillary Clinton even though she screwed you over unbelievable now they also said we have bernie forever not just for four years is that so hard to settle for okay well by that logic sarah shouldn't we be more excited about what hillary clinton can't do if she were president because she has the clinton foundation right so couldn't she do more charity work if she wasn't the president so, I mean, if you're using that own logic and you apply it to Hillary Clinton, it doesn't necessarily transfer over. So, I mean, the reason why we wanted Bernie Sanders to become president is because he would dramatically shift the narrative in the country and bring Democrats hopefully back to where they were when FDR was president, when Jimmy Carter was president. Jimmy Carter was the last FDR-like uh, president that we've had. And ever since then, we've gotten corporatist, centrist, establishment Democrats, and clearly it's not working. The economy is doing great again, but for the top one-tenth of one percent, not for us peasants. So you guys might not be able to understand that because you get millions to just talk shit about peasants, but we actually have to go to work for a living. And she also said again, that's why I don't understand these burning or bust people. I don't know what their long game is. I earnestly am asking, or am I just being a Obtuse. Yes, you're being obtuse. Here's the long game. We're telling the Democratic Party that once and for all, they don't have our votes no matter what, regardless of how scary the Republican is, be it Trump or Satan himself. We're taking a stand and saying you don't get to continue to move to the right with the Republicans and continue to just be a little bit less shitty than Republicans. Either you be liberal or you lose your base. The DNC rigged the primary so Bernie Sanders would lose, basically telling us that you'll never get the candidate that we actually want, meaning we'll never get real change. So by voting for Jill Stein, we're telling the Democratic Party that if they're not going to fight for us, we'll find somebody who will. By rigging the primary, the DNC and the Democratic Party sent a very clear message to the voters. If you ever try to put forth an actual anti-establishment, real progressive candidate, 
We're going to veto that choice. You're not going to have a say. We're going to do everything we can to destroy his or her campaign. That's what they told us. So why would we support a party that doesn't want real change, that just wants to get in office and do the bidding of their corporate donors? Sorry, I'm not falling for it anymore. And I get, if you want to vote for Hillary Clinton to stop Donald Trump, that's on you. That's fine. I respect that decision. Now respect mine because my reasons are valid. Now Herd and Bill Maher said, we voted for Ralph Nader in 2000, but this is not that kind of time. And then Bill Maher said that he wasn't an idiot, unlike Gary Johnson. Well, I disagree with Gary Johnson on a plethora of issues, but there's one pretty big elephant in the room that you're leaving out. Jill Stein. Oh wait, you probably don't want to mention her because there's no substantive criticisms that you can use against her uh, to imply that Hillary Clinton is somehow better than Jill Stein. And if you do try to convince us that we should vote for Hillary Clinton over Jill Stein, you can't do that without invoking Donald Trump. So you just completely disregard that altogether. You leave out Jill Stein. Clever, really clever, but we, we're onto the bullshit. We know what you're doing. And Bill Maher talked about why progressives shouldn't support Gary Johnson, saying that he's for none of the things you people want. But here's the thing, uh, with the exception of pot legalization, I do agree that Gary Johnson would be a disaster. He is a neoliberal nightmare. He is, you know, he's a libertarian. So the domestic policies would be horrible. But if you compare him to Hillary Clinton, strictly looking at foreign policy, he is sane. Hillary Clinton is a war hawk to the nth degree. She said that she would respond to cyber attacks militarily. She wants a Syrian no-fly zone. You have to put boots on the ground for that. You could potentially reignite a new Cold War by telling Russia you don't get to fly your plane over this territory, and if you do, we're going to shoot it down. Gary Johnson isn't saying any of those things. So by supporting Gary Johnson, I don't get why you would support him over Jill Stein, but... In supporting him, you're kind of making a sacrifice. You get horrible domestic policies, but at least you get sane foreign policies. So it's one or the other. So you, you have to look at everything. There's nuance, right? Hillary Clinton, she's better on domestic policies probably than Gary Johnson, although they wouldn't be that much different. But, I mean, in foreign policy, there's no comparison there. Gary Johnson just is hands down better than Hillary Clinton. Now, here's what I've really come to despise from all these celebrities and just the constant finger wagging and the smug implication that they somehow know better than us because they're richer than us or older than us and wiser than us. Look, here's a challenge for Bill Maher and Sarah Silverman and any other smug celebrity like Whoopi Goldberg or Seth Meyers that wants to talk down to us peasants. Here's the challenge. You ready? So here's what you got to do. You actually have to mention that Jill Stein exists. That's the first part. And the second part is that you have to objectively explain why she's not as good as Hillary Clinton. And you have to do that without invoking Donald Trump. If you can do that, then I'll hear you out. But if you can't do that, you know you're on the wrong side of the argument. So with how disliked Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are as presidential candidates, and with the level of enthusiasm you see Jill Stein garnering on social media, you would think that she would at least be able to garner more than 2% in public opinion polls, but unfortunately she's polling at just that. 2%. So the question is, what the hell is going on? And it may come down to polling methodology that is significantly underestimating the level of support 
Jill Stein has, Inquisitor explains, Guessing which poll respondents will actually show up on election day has always been something of an informed guess for pollsters, and they don't sound terribly confident this year compared to the past. These methods, which have been around for so long, may be losing some of their accuracy because circumstances have changed, Scott Keeter, a senior survey advisor at Pew Research, told The Atlantic. Whether there has been a change in our politics in just the last two years that makes all of this less accurate is really impossible to answer at this point. And those likely voter models, the ones that are used to show Jill Stein's low support, are generally weighted to expect fewer young and first-time voters. That happens to make up a large share of the Green Party's base, so a model that fails to take these voters into account will have Jill Stein underperforming. So basically, what's going on is a large proportion of the Green Party's support comes from millennial voters, and our demographic, I think we can all admit, is less reliable when it comes to whether or not they're going to show up to vote. And each year, the rate at which we show up to vote is declining. So it's really difficult to accurately gauge how many millennials will show up, especially in, in an election year like this, where we have two historically disliked candidates in Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So this is the same thing that impacted Bernie Sanders as well, because they tried to formulate polls that would be weighted against younger people because that's kind of what they're anticipating happening. I don't necessarily think that they have this plan to hide support for Jill Stein supporters. And look, we do know that certain polls do disproportionately and intentionally create bias against people like Jill Stein and Gary Johnson because of the way in which they phrase the questions. And there's a separate video of that I will put a link to in the description box. But when it comes to just trying to guess how many younger voters will come out? Pollsters really try to take this into account, and in the end, it ends up really hurting the polling numbers for people like Jill Stein and Gary Johnson as well. Now, they also explain that as the presidential race tightens and voters grow more afraid of the prospect of their most hated candidate winning, they tend to, quote, come home. And when they come home, they end up voting for one of the two major candidates. So this indicates that we probably won't see Jill Stein and Gary Johnson's poll numbers rise anytime soon, especially as it gets closer and closer to the election, because less people will be inclined to take a risk and vote third party. So the problem is that we don't necessarily know how much support Jill Stein is actually getting, and there's really no way to measure this that would really tell us how much support she's getting, because you can look at anecdotal evidence and see just how enthusiastic people are on Facebook and Twitter, but in actuality, trying to figure out how enthusiastic people are and how that's going to translate into her voting numbers and how many people will come out to vote for her are two very different things that are really difficult to determine. So I don't necessarily blame pollsters for this, because admittedly, Look, our demographic is very difficult to track. We rarely turn out for midterm elections, and our track record of turning out to vote during presidential elections, like I said, it's been declining, so this is something that is a problem. So I think that the only way that we could really rectify this problem and help third-party candidates is if us millennials get out and vote, because if we're a reliable voting demographic and we come out to vote at every single election, 
then they won't weight these polls against us. And third-party candidates, who we are more likely to support than other voting demographics, well, they're actually going to have a chance to get into debates. And if they get into debates, well, then that will propel them to the national stage and give them a much higher chance of actually winning. Now, it comes down to electoral reform as well, not just debates. We need electoral reform. It's very difficult for third-party candidates to win in these winner-take-all majoritarian systems like ours, but we can at least give them a chance and improve their odds if we actually reliably show up to vote. But the frustrating thing is that that's not going to happen overnight. It has to happen over multiple election cycles. And with the rate that things are going, even if we all come out in large numbers to vote during this election, well, that's not going to change much for the next election cycle because they can look at this as an anomaly. So it's really, really tricky. And overall, it's just frustrating that they don't really have a way to predict how many millennials will actually get out and vote for the candidate they say they're supporting. Now think about how well this reflects on Jill Stein's character because she really tries to tailor her policies to millennial voters because they come out to support her in larger numbers than older demographics. So she could try to move further to the right and pander more to older voters and whatnot, but she's not doing that. She's just being genuine and stating what policy she wants to implement. And she's being forward thinking and trying to help out millennials because we're the ones who, when we're older, we're going to have to deal with the consequences of climate change. We have no idea what the economy will look like by then. So I think that it's really admirable for third-party candidates to remain consistent in spite of this problem that uh, pollsters have in trying to track millennials. And look, I'm not going to completely strip blame away from pollsters because they do phrase questions in a way that hurts third-party candidates. So, I mean, rather than asking who they support more, they usually ask who they're going to vote for. And who they like or support more is a very different question than who they're actually going to vote for. So, even though they may like Jill Stein more politically, they might say they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton to, to defeat Donald Trump. So, there are ways in which these polls are biased against third-party candidates. But in this way, I don't necessarily think it is the pollster's fault for hurting third-party candidates. I think this is just an inadvertent consequence of trying to gauge how much support a candidate is going to receive if a large proportion of their voting base doesn't always come out to vote. So it's just a really tricky thing. It is hurting Jill Stein, unfortunately. So if you're a Gary Johnson or a Jill Stein supporter, you can already name the arguments constantly used against your candidate, that they're a spoiler, uh, they're a protest vote, they're never going to win. Now, if a new progressive ballot initiative passes in Maine, well, all of those arguments will be irrelevant. So according to Vox, if Maine question five passes, Mainers will get to select up to five candidates in order of preference. If there is no majority in the initial tally of voting and their first choice finishes last in the initial tally, their vote will be transferred to their second choice in the next tally. In each tally, the last place finisher gets eliminated. And if there is still no majority and their second choice ranks last in the second tally, their vote will be be transferred to their third choice and so on until one candidate has a majority. Or put another way, if one candidate wins a majority in the initial tally, there is no runoff. 
If no candidate wins a majority, candidates are eliminated from the bottom up with each eliminated candidate's supporters going to their next ranked choice for the following round until one candidate has more than half of the votes. Maine may be an especially fertile ground for such an initiative. Republican governor has twice been elected with less than majority support, including only 38% in 2010. He is widely unpopular and has drawn many comparisons to Donald Trump for his aggressive insults and overt racism. According to latest polls, Mainers support the initiative 48% to 29%. Now, if that all sounded confusing to you, don't worry. Many people find it confusing. Here's a video that should clear it up. So this could be huge, potentially. Maine could be leading the way for nationwide electoral reform because even though this doesn't turn us into a proportional system, we're still winner-take-all, this at least gives us the option of ranking our choices so we never have to hear that terrible argument about your favorite candidate being a spoiler again. And this could lead the way for more Green Party candidates and more Libertarian Party candidates actually getting elected to Congress and maybe the White House one day. Now, besides all the obvious benefits, there are some issues with ranked choice voting. So it complicates the ballot, which can confuse voters and discourage turnout. This is a big problem, so we don't want to do that. Now, it can also lead to less educated and more poor voters incorrectly marking their ballot. This would also kind of spoil their ballot and potentially be a big issue. And in the end, like I said, it's still majoritarian and the winner wins it all. The loser gets nothing. However, I think all the positive consequences that would inevitably come to fruition with this type of system... They outweigh any negatives. So this would certainly encourage more people to vote for third parties, which is a good thing because they're more representative of voters. And people can vote for their first choice, who they like the most, rather than voting for the person who they think can beat the person who they like the least. This would be potentially revolutionary. I mean, it, it's just huge. Now, according to Vox, it also increases civility. The single vote winner-take-all zero-sum nature of our current elections encourages candidates to tear each other apart since voters only can choose one candidate. But if candidates start competing to be voters' second and third choices, they have incentives to play a little nicer with each other so as to not alienate potential supporters. You can imagine candidates saying, vote for me, but also pick this person as second. And in country where they do have ranked choice voting or single transferable voting systems, they do say this. They say, uh, vote for us as one and then vote for this person as second. We will see dramatically different campaign strategies in Maine. So, I mean, this is an issue that would positively affect everyone in the country with the exception of Democrats and Republicans. Because what are they going to do now if they can't fearmonger about how shitty the other party is? Gone will be the argument that, well, if you don't vote for me, then you're going to allow him or her to win. And you don't want that to happen, right? So you better vote for me rather than voting your conscience. Now, this is really important. We all have a vested interest in supporting this initiative because just like other issues like marijuana legalization, all it takes is one state to get the ball rolling and you kind of see that domino effect where other states start doing the same thing. And if this proves to work, then it's going to be on the ballot and many more states come the next election, potentially even uh, the 2018 election. So this is huge. I mean, this is really important. This is something we all need to help Maine with. I mean, if we could spread the word about it and educate people about question five, then we can potentially see a whole new country in a few decades. So even though it's the case that we don't often get true progressives elected into office, 
When you put progressive issues up to a vote, they tend to win. Now, according to the Washington Post, in all five states where marijuana legalization is a ballot issue, it's leading in the polls. So they explain, in Arizona, a late August Arizona Republic slash Morrison slash Cronkite news poll of 784 registered voters found that 50% supported marijuana legalization, 40% opposed it, and 10% remain undecided. That result is sharply at odds with a July poll of likely voters showing that only 39% said they favored the measure. In California, a post-debate Survey USA poll of 751 likely voters found that Proposition 64, which would legalize, tax, and regulate the sale of recreational marijuana, is supported by 52% of the electorate and opposed by 41% with 6% undecided. This is a lower margin than some other recent polls there, which have pegged support at 60% or more. Across the country, in Massachusetts, the marijuana legalization measure there enjoys 53% support among likely voters, according to a recent WBZ UMass Amherst poll of 700 likely voters. 40% oppose it, while another 7% are unsure. That's also a turnaround from an earlier poll of 900 registered voters, which found only 41% supported the measure. Up the coast in Maine, a late September poll of 505 likely voters found 53% support for the legalization measure, 38% opposed to it, and 10% undecided. This number has been fairly stable since the spring. A poll fielded last week of 500 likely voters in Nevada found the legalization measure there leading with 57% support, compared to 33% opposing it. That number is sharply at odds with a review journal survey of 800 likely voters fielded at the exact same time which found the legalization measure leading by just one percentage point, well within the margin of error. I think that these polls signal a clear trend. The U.S. is headed for full legalization. Now, regardless, if we get a Republican in the White House and they decide to unilaterally stop these sales from going through, here's one thing that we know for sure about American politics that suggests that marijuana in the end will be legal in all 50 states. Money always wins. Where there's money, you're going to have victory when it comes to American politics. And the fact that marijuana is generating so much money, so much more tax dollars, so much revenue for new businesses in the four states where they're legal, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, and uh, Alaska, I always forget the fourth one, you just know that money is going to win. Now, as someone who lives in a state that has full legalized marijuana, I've been into recreational marijuana shops, I can assure everyone that society in my state of Oregon has not collapsed yet. It's all cool. In fact, if anything, people are maybe more calm about marijuana. The fear-mongering has gone away. Any fears about it being marketed to children have been completely assuaged. Nobody's really concerned about it. There's no big efforts to repeal it. We are just cool with it. Nothing went wrong. Any fear-mongering that anti-legalization groups tried to put forth, it just showed that it was bullshit. And look, this is going to be a trend everywhere. And it's odd to look at these states where uh, marijuana legalization is on the ballot, but then you go to some states and they don't even have medical marijuana legal. How crazy is that? I mean, there are multiple medical studies that show that there are numerous benefits of medical marijuana. So it's it's really weird to see this dynamic where you have really conservative states not even allowing for medical marijuana and then you have other states 
just fully legalizing it. And when you look at Nevada, I mean, this is more of a swing state. So it's strange to me that it's leading there. Now, another reason why I think marijuana legalization is going to be a reality in all 50 states is because this crosses party lines. When you poll voters, both Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives, you'll find that many young people support legalization. So it's going to be the case that we're going to have marijuana in all 50 states. We said this about marriage equality and it came to fruition very quickly. And I think this is going to be the case about marijuana legalization as well. So again, don't get your hopes up because this isn't guaranteed the pass in all five of these states. But I think it's just a great sign that we really can win big on this progressive issue in particular. Well, that's all I got for you guys. If you made it this far in the episode, you are truly a trooper. And thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, to everyone who is a supporter and watches every single week, to all the members, the Patreon patrons, the people who donate on humanistreport.com, you truly make this show possible, and I can't thank you enough. So I really hope you guys like this episode. Uh, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Thanks.